This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us for worship Sundays at 10 a.m. Visit us online at holytrinityrec.org. Find us on Facebook as Holy Trinity Houston, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram as Holy Trinity REC. Enjoy the sermon. They abandoned their cities and fled. This line in our Old Testament lesson today concerns the aftermath and the death of Saul and his sons, the fall of his kingdom. And it concludes our uh, reading and meditations and sermons on this book over the last year. Israel saw what had happened, total defeat along with losing their king and his heirs. And as we read today, they fled for their safety. The Philistines then came in and lived in the places that were abandoned. This end to this book of 1 Samuel and the end of the reign of Israel's first king is indeed very bleak, just as with the end of the book of Judges. All seemed lost. Yet as we have read together, these tragic events were a long time coming due to Saul's continued unrepentant sin. In the middle of our Lent this year and in the midst of horrendous troubles in our own day, let us learn from God's dealing with Saul and how we need to approach our lives in relationship to God. Verses 1 through 7 of our reading this morning speaks of the event of Saul's death and those around him in battle to the Philistine army. After taking a break in the last chapter with David dealing with the Amalekites that had raided the town they were living in and took their women and children, this chapter takes up where chapter 29 left off, with Israel preparing for another invasion. With David removed by God from the midst of the Philistine army, the Philistines then attacked, and we read of the end result. Israel had no chance due to the persistent sins of her king. As we've been reading, Saul, after cutting himself off from God, went to his satanic methods through a medium to try to find out God's will in this invasion. He was rejected at every turn, culminating with this ultimate turning away from God to a medium. After hearing of his doom from this witch, Saul knew he was going into a battle he would lose. Ultimately, the demise of Saul and his house is a cautionary note to all of us when dealing with sin. His major fault, as we've been reading, was that he did things his own way. When told to wait for the prophet Samuel to offer the normal sacrifice before entering battle, Saul panicked, seeing his army deserting, and he offered it himself. When told to deal with the Amalekites in battle in a very specific manner, he spared their king and took spoils when he was told the opposite. In all of these things, as we've read together, he even repented, but with a repentance of the sort that was made because he was caught with no intention of change. He was a man given many opportunities by God and by David to repent, to turn from his rebellion. Yet, as we've read, he went deeper and deeper until he turned from God to a medium for advice. He sought shortcuts his entire life. As we know, sin, all sin, are shortcuts. 
We do not like patient waiting on God's. We take shortcuts of all sorts, as Saul did, as many do. The shortcuts we take toward God all really say is this, I'm God, I do not need to listen to God and to his word. This was Saul to his, for his entire life. Saul exhibited much of the cautions listed in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 5. He was impure in his rebellion, in his repeated impenitence, and ultimately the impurity of seeking idolatrous means for advice. As Ephesians 5.13 reminds us, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. With Saul and his sons and his closest associates fighting the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, a last stand, we read the following in verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. Saul's defeat, his death in battle, was not in a hidden corner of a battlefield. It happened on a hilltop. The last moments of a complete defeat for many in Israel to witness. Saul was no more, and his people fled. Another manner to view this incident is the perspective of David through all of these events. Even though David was always zealous for the life of the king and never did anything to harm him, he always made it clear in his prayers of his turmoil that the Lord would deliver him from the murderous designs of Saul towards him. David would not harm the Lord's anointed, yet he still prayed for deliverance, leaving it in the hands of God in terms of how such would occur. Earlier in this book, when Saul was spared by David, David said the following to Saul in chapter 24, verses 12 and following. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And in verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David in his faithfulness knew God would deal with Saul to eventually remove him. Our prayers for deliverance from our enemies are much the same, leaving it in God's hands in terms of the means of the removal, whether as Saul who died in battle or as the Apostle Paul before his conversion was changed to become part of God's people, the same people he had sought to eliminate. God works in many ways to answer the cries of his people in distress. It is not up to us in terms of how he accomplishes such. Hence, as seen in the opening chapter of 2 Samuel, David is highly distraught, mourns the loss of King Saul deeply. We must learn from such in dealing with those that torment us that the godly approach to the death of an enemy is how we read David responded in sorrow. The response to an enemy that repents truly and becomes part of us is to rejoice. Too often, unfortunately, we turn to sin in our response to the answered prayers of deliverance from our enemies, sometimes even taking glee in their deaths or showing disappointment and disdain for those that turn from their sins, as with Jonah. Our call must be as David, praying for deliverance, yet merciful and loving to even his enemies. 
as Jesus told us in his Gospels, to love our enemies, to pray for them. A good Lenten discipline is to pray for grace and how to deal with our enemies. It should be to pray for them. It should be to love them. It should be for us to look to Jesus Christ alone in our dealings with those that hurt us. It should be to pray for their deliverance in God's manner, in God's timing. As our psalm for this week outlines a penitential psalm of David, we see the proper mode of supplication for when we deal with oppression. It starts with asking God to hear his prayers and pleas through God's faithfulness and God's righteousness. Verse 2 continues to acknowledge the point that no one, even David, praying this prayer that is persecuted is righteous before God. And verses 3 through 4 then speaks of David's travails, mirroring much of what we read in 1 Samuel in terms of Saul pursuing David. Then in verses 5 through 6, he speaks of his worship and dependence upon God even through perilous times, remembering God's work for mankind and then stretching his hands out to worship God, longing for him as one that is thirsty in a dry land. And in verses 7 and 8 of the psalm, he speaks more of asking God's help, asking for the way to go. And verses 9 through 12 speaks again of asking for deliverance from enemies. Verse 9 states, Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. In this fleeing to him for refuge, David speaks of asking God to teach him to do his will, to lead him on level ground. He ends the psalm with asking God to preserve his very life, to bring his soul out of trouble. And finally, in 12, to cut off his enemies, to to destroy all the adversaries of his soul. This last chapter in 1 Samuel is the answer to all of David's pleas in Psalm 143 and in other places in Scripture. God delivers his people in his way and his timing. Our call is patience, as David was patient remaining faithful, walking in love as Christ loves us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our call is to love, not to selfishness. Let's put this timing into perspective in terms of David's waiting. In scripture, we see waiting periods throughout. Christ fasted in the wilderness for 40 days before embarking on his journey of ministering to us. How long did David and his men remain outside the land before Saul was killed in battle? Well over a year. How long did it take from the fall of humanity in the garden for God to send his only begotten son? A very long time. The call of the faithful is to wait on God regardless of how bleak things are looking, are going. It all centers on faithful obedience to God and his word through all that we endure for his sake. The last part of chapter 31 speaks of what happened the next day after the battle. We read that the Philistines came and desecrated the body of Saul and his sons and spread the news of his death throughout their country. Even fastening his body and the bodies of his sons to to the wall of one of their cities. Part of judgment is that The body, after death, does not even have peace. When the inhabitants, as we read of Jabesh Gilead, heard what occurred, a town Saul had helped during his reign, we read of the response in verse 12. 
All the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. They did all of this to prevent the Philistines from a future desecration of the bodies of the king and his sons. The men of Jabesh-Gilead provide a sobering outlook of the links to take for the dignity of each other, the dignity of others, even in death. It's an important reminder for us in our own time, reading in our own history, especially of the immense loss of life in many battles during the American Civil War. It was often the practice of the victorious enemy to leave their dead enemies in the fields to rot where they fell, often to the point that it was not until years later that organizations were set up with the sole purpose of burying the dead, still left unburied. In a crisis such as we find ourselves in today, where we're called to be at distance from each other socially, many of us are left to only interact with immediate family, occasional visits to the grocery store, doctor's appointments, and others via social media. It's a time where it's too easy to treat those around us that are lost or sick as statistics, as numbers. For too long, our nation has lived at a distance from each other, if you think about it. Even the wars we fight is barely registering for the majority of us unless we know someone personally that was killed in one of those wars. Now all of us today deal with the same issue, this, this virus. All of us deal with how it is affecting everything around us, from our work to our living to our worship. How do we reply in such a state, especially after the din of battle and the din of disease and death passes away and we get back to our our daily lives? Do we act as the Israelites that fled their homes for the Philistines to move in or as the men of Jabesh-Gilead to boldly go forth when able and to retake our dignity, our respect, and our basic humanity by recovering Saul and his sons. When this is over, don't go back to where many took public worship for granted. Rather, take it back and fill the sanctuaries of the Lord to his glory, honor, and obedience. Amen.